Let's open our Bibles. We're looking at Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 16. I just want to thank Pastor James. He did a great job opening up this series. Uh, in the providence of God, I happened to set foot on the Isle of Crete the very morning that James was opening up this book of the Bible. I'll tell you, I couldn't have planned it any better than that. And right there, you have a picture before you of the Basilica of Titus, which is there on Crete. And let me just clarify, that's not the church that Titus preached from. Um, they didn't have a structure like that when he was preaching. But this is a church that was built in recognition or honor of Titus who had done work on the Isle of Crete. It was a really informative trip for me. And as I was going about looking at these various places and cities where, church, where the church, the early church, had been founded by the Apostle Paul, there were really two great truths that came to my mind. The first church, or truth, is this, that gospel ministry produces impact well beyond the present. I mean, think about it. It's been 2,000 years, and 2,000 years later, we're still talking about the ministries of Titus and Paul, who did work here. The second truth was actually the reverse side of the coin, and it's this, that churches can easily turn into empty shells. They can become ruins, visited by thousands of tourists looking back at historical things that happened, significant things that happened while Nothing is presently happening. Jesus had some words of warning to the seven churches in the land of Turkey where we were visiting. He said to the church of Ephesus, you've lost your first love. Well, that's one way that you can become a church that eventually will be a ruin. Stop loving Jesus. Stop making that the center of who you are and what you're about. To the church of Sardis, he said, listen, you have the reputation for being alive, but guess what? You're dead. There's nothing really happening here. It's all about you. And then in the church of Laodicea, maybe you're familiar with this one. He said, you're neither hot nor cold. You are lukewarm. And in that day and age, that culture, they had purposes and uses for hot water and cold water, but nothing good came out of lukewarm water. So how does this happen? Well, churches become ruins because they don't live out the vision that Jesus gave us in Matthew 5.14. He said that the church is to be a city on a hill. They're to shine the light of God's truth into the places and regions around them. And Paul, in the book of Titus, gives us a roadmap for how a church becomes a place that radiates the light in the life of Christ. He says, essentially, in the book of Titus, that the church is designed to help followers of Jesus become zealous for good works. That's the big idea. The kind of good works that draw people to Christ. And it all happens by grace, because it turns out that we are sinners saved by grace. And then God 
takes us by his grace and he transforms us and he makes us into the kind of people who become zealous for good works to glorify God and to win people to Christ. Now for Paul, the key to all of that is church health. You see, unhealthy churches, they're not zealous for good works. It's all about them. It's all about what's going on inside the four walls of the church. But healthy churches, on the other hand, they send their people out to be salt and light locally, regionally, and internationally. Todd Wilson recognizes that Saul gives us, in this book of Titus, seven vast practices that result in church health. I want you to take a look at those on the screen. The first Pastor James covered last week is preaching. The second is leadership. The third is teaching. And then you have grace, readiness, focus, and learning. You don't have to take all this down right now. I'll bring these up week after week just to remind you. But these are the seven best practices that lead to a church that is zealous for good works. The most important on the list is number one, preaching, and then followed closely by number two, leadership, which is what we're looking at this morning. So let's read uh, Titus 1 verses 5 through 16, and we'll see it in the text. Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer is God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said this, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now, he's being a little tongue-in-cheek here, and he's using one of their own prophets to characterize the false teachers. He's not saying this of all Cretans. Paul's saying this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable disobedient, unfit for any good works. We're going to see three implications 
of leadership in healthy churches this morning from this text. The first is this, that healthy churches need elders. You know, it's incredible. I was just uh, actually talking to someone in the, the lobby about this church, in the age of the church. The church is founded in 1835. It's over 185 years old. And in the course of the history of this church, we've had over 70 pastors. I mean, that's a lot of pastors when you think about it in the life of a church. And all these pastors, they had contributions, significant contributions, but I think one of the pastors who made one of the greatest contributions to this church in the history of the church is actually the pastor who came just before me, Dr. Nick Gatsky. He's an incredible guy, a great teacher of the word, a great pastor, and one of the things that Nick did that I think really changed the trajectory of this church is that he came to the church advocating that the church move to a more biblical model of leadership, and that's eldership. Now, why would I say that? Well, it's because leadership is so powerful. Churches are killed when there's bad leadership, and they thrive on good and godly leadership. You've probably heard it said like this, as goes the leadership, so goes the, what, church, right? As goes the leadership, so goes the church. So Paul, as he's sending Titus into this Isle of Crete, he says, listen, one of the first things that you need to do is you need to plant leadership in this place. Why? Because healthy churches need elders. And these good leaders, they're going to instill in the church a value for the ministry of the church, being zealous for good works. But maybe even as I say this word elder, you're thinking to yourself, well, who in the world are these people and what do they do? I mean, I kind of have an idea of pastor and what a pastor does. I'm convinced of the fact he works, at least on Sundays he works. But what about these elders? What do they do? Well, let's do a little word association game this morning, okay? You've probably done this before. I say a word and then you just kind of capture the first word that comes to your mind. So for example, if I say the word fire, you may think of something like light as your word. Now, I don't want you to shout out loud what you're thinking. You can keep it to yourself. Can everyone do that with me this morning? I'm going to say a word, first word that comes to your mind. The word is elder. Now, sadly, for a lot of people, when you say that word, they think meetings in way too many of them. And as Harry Fletcher likes to say of these meetings, just shoot me dead. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't sound fun. And the sad thing is, is that is what can happen within churches. Eldership can devolve into a meeting of men. That's not a good thing. There's far better words that should be coming to our mind when we think of elder, such as teach and doctrine and shepherd. And a really important word is indispensable. 
Every healthy church needs healthy leaders because the church will never rise above its leaders. And interestingly enough, the Bible doesn't have a lot of specific guidance on church polity or governance, but it does consistently insist upon eldership, which, you know, we're wise to remember this, because much of what we do as a church, how we organize ourselves and how we do ministry, that's not all biblically required. For example, are small groups biblically prescribed? The answer is, Lori's shaking her head yes, but I'm going to burst her bubble. The answer is no. What about four membership meetings per year? Well, thank God the answer to that one is no. What about using Robert's rules of order when you're doing a membership meeting? The answer is, sorry, bylaws, Bob. The answer is no. What about having a choir? No. But eldership we see that in the scripture. Why? Because churches fall apart without solid leadership. So as you look at the New Testament, you see Paul on his missionary journeys installing elders every place where he plants a church. For example, you look at Acts 14.23 and it tells us that Paul and Barnabas did this. It says, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they have believed. The pattern is consistent. We read of elders in the church of Jerusalem, in the church of Ephesus, the churches that Peter writes to in his letters, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. James points out the idea of elders in James chapter 5. And what you get as you put this comprehensive picture together is that elders are essential. You have to have them in a church. So now the question remains, well, what kind of elders do we need? What's essential to the role? Degrees? Business acumen? Political savvy? Good looks? I like what Brian Chappell writes. He says, notice that among Christian leadership qualifications, there are no mountains to climb, no alligators to wrestle, no pilgrimages to make, no prophecies to utter, no ancient manuscripts to decode, no visions to conjure, no tortures to endure, and no miracles to perform. Now listen closely to what he says here. The standards for Christian leadership strictly relate to one, one's examples before others. It's all about example, and I find that encouraging because church leadership is not about finding the next unicorn. You know, that, that privileged, unique person that has the genetics or the skills that no one else has. They have those unrivaled qualities. That's not what we see in the scriptures. No, Paul says it's about finding men who are worth modeling your life after. Model matters because the church's reputation rests upon the reputation of its leaders. And I want to say this, I think we got this all flipped upside down in North America. Instead of finding leadership with character and conduct, we've elevated charisma and competence. And look at the fallout that's happening. 
Every single year, there's another person with another huge platform that has fallen from grace. Why? Because they didn't have the two qualifications that mattered, character and conduct. And what happens when that happens? Well, it disadvantages the gospel in that place. The reputation of the church and of the Lord Jesus Christ is diminished. So Paul is not concerned about charisma and competence. He cares about your personal life and how your actions impact others. I want you to see an important word in the text. Look at verse 5 and verse 7. The word is above reproach. But Rob, that's two words. No, it's one word in the Greek. And it means that a person cannot be charged with an offense. Basically, no one can reasonably accuse them of living inconsistently with the faith. And let me just be clear, Paul is not suggesting that it's only the elders of the church that need to be above reproach. Every Christian needs to have a good reputation inside the church and outside the church. It just so happens that elders especially need to be above reproach because, again, the church will not arise above its leaders. How do you like discern that objectively? Well, look at three different spheres of life that Paul tells us to look at. The first sphere is a person's home life. The second is their overall pattern of life. This is their overall character and conduct. And then thirdly, is the area of biblical conviction. So think about the home first. Look at verse 6. It tells us this, that a hu- the, an elder is the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, I don't understand that to mean Paul here is creating some technicalities or two technicalities in particular when it comes to leadership, meaning if you've ever been divorced or you're presently not married or one of your children goes off reservation, well then you're just perpetually disqualified from leadership. Here's what I think he's saying, and I think it's a lot simpler than that, that if a man is married, and if he has children, he had better be a faithful husband and a faithful father. Because after all, if he's not faithful in his home, he's not going to be faithful to the church. So here's a word to fathers for just a minute. This extends well beyond just simply maintaining your marriage vows. It's about your overall quality of leadership in your home, being present, discipling your children, being a man of prayer for your household. You're not a workaholic who gives your family the scraps, but you're giving them your best. You give your children emotional warmth. They know that dad loves them. And dad is the same man in the home as he is in the church. That's what this pattern of life is all about. It's not a compartmentalized life. It's who you are when no one is looking. And guess who sees who you are when no one's looking? Your kids. 
What kind of character does this man possess? Well, verses 7 and 8, he's not arrogant. He's not quick-tempered, a drunkard, violent, greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. You see, church, churches need leaders who model spiritual growth that leads to spiritual maturity. I hate to break it to you, but a lot of people that come through the doors of this church, they don't have it all together. I, I've had multiple conversations with people over the years. They're like, oh yeah, I came to church, and when I got into the church, I was just expecting to, to, to stand out as this big sinner against everyone else. I was expecting everyone else to have it all together, and here's kind of the sad thing. They're like, then I started rubbing shoulders with those people, and they don't have it all together. You know, we can come in and we can put on our smiles and our happy faces and act like we've got it all together, but I know for a fact as the pastor of this church that some of you are in marriages that are dissatisfying, that you're struggling with things like addiction, and that sometimes your thought patterns become so overwhelming that even though you want to believe and hope that things are going to get better, you can't imagine it. Here's the thing. Every Sunday when we walk through the doors of the church, there are a lot of people who are spiritually struggling. And they need the example of leaders who can show them that they don't have to be stuck, that there's a way forward. I like what Brian Chappell says. Listen to this one. He says, godliness in leaders is a gift of hope to those who are struggling. Let me say that one more time. Godliness in leaders is a gift of hope to those who are struggling. You see what he's saying here? He's not saying that the example of a mature Christian is about making you feel unworthy or an inferior. That's not what it's about at all. In fact, if someone positions or postures themselves in that way in the church, they are by definition not mature. They don't get it. No, good examples are meant to be like anchors to show people in the church that the gospel has real power, that change can happen, that tomorrow doesn't have to be like yesterday. And we all need that reminder. I need that reminder. And here's what's even cooler. You don't have to be an elder to be that anchor. Parents, you can be that anchor for your children. If you serve in Sunday school or as a youth worker, you can be that anchor for children in the church or a small group leader or a spiritual mentor to others. You are an anchor to someone who's going through the same process of growth that you've gone through in your life. And every church needs that. But most important, Churches need people of biblical conviction. And when it comes to this elder, Paul's saying that this guy is a man of the word. That he knows the word of God and he loves the word of God. That he's like that man in Psalm 1 who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of the sinner nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. You know what that means? It means that this guy's 
worldview and pattern for life is not being shaped by all of the noise around them, like the pundits and YouTube and those types of things. No, this man delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. And Paul says that a man who allows his worldview to be shaped in that way is able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, John Calvin, the pastor and theologian, he talked about the need for pastors and elders to have two voices in the church. The first voice is for gathering the sheep and, and feeding them. That's biblical instruction. The second voice was for scaring away the wolves. That's rebuke. In fact, as you look at eldership, there are several different responsibilities that elders have in a church. The first responsibility, well, I would say four responsibilities, and the first is leading. So yes, if you become an elder or think about it, there are meetings. You have to show up to meetings because it's in that space of meetings that elders are carefully protecting and leading and advancing the mission of the church. Secondly, there is the responsibility of feeding. That's teaching the word of God. Thirdly, there's care. That's taking care of the spiritual needs of the church. One example of that is found in James 5, where it talks about elders coming around a sick person, anointing them with oil, and, and praying over that person. The fourth responsibility is shepherding, which I would submit to you is protecting the church. You see, that's the third point that we're going to see this morning. Healthy churches, they need protectors. They need elders to protect the church. And it was this fourth responsibility that was especially needed on the Isle of Crete. Paul, in verse 10, he says to Timothy, listen, I need you to go in there and establish elders because there is this group called the circumcision party, and they are greatly disrupting this church here on Crete. In fact, as Paul did ministry all throughout Turkey and Greece and in those regions of the world, he ran into people like this a lot. He references people like this a lot. I've heard it said like this, you can go to a different church and you'll always find the same people there. You know what that means? You might leave this church because there's certain types and individuals who have problems, but you go into the next church and they bring in the same two issues, and that is ego and rivalry. You're going to find it there too. So keep running, but they'll be there waiting for you. Paul says that this circumcision party is preaching a gospel plus message. You know the gospel, right? The gospel says this most basically, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. His work on the cross is a full and final sort of work for the remission of your sins, that when he died on the cross in your place, there is nothing that you can do. We all come to the cross in the same way, the same level ground, by the grace of God, through faith. I can't add to the work of Jesus Christ. But here you have these individuals, and what are they doing? They're coming in and saying, you need Jesus plus. 
special religious knowledge and rites and ceremonies in order to get to heaven. Now, we live in a time where we've relativized truth, we've subjectivized truth. We just say, ah, you know, if someone, you know, has that sort of leaning, that's okay. It's their thing. It's for them. It doesn't affect anyone else. But here's the thing. Paul comes out so strongly against false teaching because it's not insignificant. It's not a small matter. You see two things that it does. Damage doctrine, first you'll see, damages people. He says in verse 11, that this teaching is upsetting whole families. What do you think that means? It means that whatever they're promoting is literally destroying families. It's breaking them apart. Do you think that hurts people, damages them? Of course it does. Second, you'll see that damaged doctrine also damages ministry. Verse 16 They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient. And get this last phrase, unfit for any good work. Because good works don't flow out of their character, these so-called leaders in the church are never going to direct the church towards being zealous for good work. What do they do to lead? They lead people along into spiritual rubbish, inconsequential matters that have nothing to do with Jesus' purposes for the church. So healthy churches need elders who know the truth and are willing to defend the truth. One, because it's good for the church, but two, because it's good for the community. What happens to the community if the church gets stuck on spiritual rubbish? Well, then it means no gospel ministry, no light of Christ, no ministries of mercy to those who are in need in the community, and eventually, I want to suggest, no church. The church becomes a ruin. So churches need protectors. Just like you don't want to get between a mama bear and her cub, You don't want a false teacher to get between an elder, a good elder, and the church of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's saying. He uses some strong words, doesn't he? He says, silence them. Rebuke them sharply. Strong words. But here's the truth. Leading a church requires strong leadership. And and you need individuals of courage who are willing to stand up and say those type of things. Not, I want to emphasize, for the sake of being militant, going on a heresy search, trying to find the next person that has that one, you know, point of minutia that's off, and then you're on a search and find rescue, and you're going to let them have it. That's not what it's about. There are some very rigid leaders out there that are wired that way. That's not good for a church. In fact, Paul shows us the goal of this is not about humiliation. He says, silence them so that they might too become sound in faith. It's constructive. It's wanting that person to grow as well as the other people of the church. As we close this out, I want you to think about our 10-year vision. Remember the 10-year vision, we are called to inspire, train, and mobilize transformative leaders. 
Even as you look at a passage like this, we're delving a course, we're talking about biblical eldership, but I believe this can be applied more broadly. I believe that this message can be applied to leadership in general in a church because churches need more leaders, not less leaders. We need leaders who want to inspire others to be zealous for good works in the community. We need leaders who feel called to be anchors, you know, showing their character and their conduct in a way that brings glory for Christ and shows others that there's a way forward for them. We need leaders who love the church and want to protect the church. So yes, we're talking about elders, but there's a need for leaders in general in every church. And I'm always going to be presenting this question before you. It's always on my mind. It's always on my heart. Are you willing to lead? Are you willing to take up the leadership baton? What do you mean by leadership, Rob? I mean being an advanced disciple. I mean using your influence and your resources and all the things that God's given you for the greater purposes that he has for your life. Not making your life about the three-foot square that you occupy, but going beyond that getting on mission with Jesus, doing things for his sake. Will you lead? There are Christians who avoid it. And there might be many reasons. But I think there's a big reason. You know, um, I've traveled internationally quite a bit over my life. And one thing that I believe is indispensable when I travel international is I need a guide. I need the leadership of a guide. Because when you're traveling, especially if you just don't have the experience or if you don't know a place, there's a lot that can go wrong. I mean, some of it's just the simple language barrier issues. Uh, When I travel internationally, I've been in many different contexts, heard many different languages. In every single context, it just sounds like gibberish to me. I don't understand a word of what they're saying. In fact, uh, when we were in Greece, We were on the Isle of Patmos, and Katie and I went into an ice cream shop for some gelato, and the the girl behind the counter was trying to teach me how to say the word thank you, and she kept saying the word, and I kept saying something, and she kept saying, no, not like that, say this, and we went back and forth 10 times until ultimately she just kind of concluded, disaster, you're never going to get this. And I'm like, that's why I need a guide. <laughs> or what about like what place is safe and what place is dangerous? Or, you know, one time I was traveling in Slovakia and I put my feet up on the chair across from me and a guy came in and he gave me a ticket. I had no idea what I had done. Took my money. I needed a guide. Imagine you're traveling and you hire a guide and This guy takes you into like a city center, a plaza of sorts, where you're going in for some shopping and some dinner out. And after a while, the guide looks down, and you have no clue where you are. And they're like, "Eh, it's 5 o'clock. I've got some plans tonight, and uh, I don't want to be responsible for you anymore. So good luck. You can find your way to your hotel. I'm going to go do my thing. Now, what would you say? I know what I would say. I'd say, I don't care what plans you have tonight, you're going to be canceling those plans because it is not safe for me to try to find my way 
when I have no clue, I don't even know how to communicate with the taxi cab driver to tell him where to take me. Just because you don't want to be responsible for me anymore doesn't mean that you're still not obligated. Now, you can take that over into the world of the church. And some of us, we don't want the responsibility of being a leader, of raising up other leaders. That's a problem. Because I don't think Jesus gave you the knowledge that he gave you from sitting through sermons week after week, whether good or bad, reading the Bible, good resources that you have, just so you could sit on all of that. I don't think he put the godly influences that he put in your life just for your own sense of peace and well-being. Now, as I understand the scriptures and as I look at them, he did those things so that one day you too would help someone else you would take the baton and you would pass it to them. Are you willing to be a leader? Are you willing to take up his baton? Are you willing to be zealous for good works? Let me pray. Lord, what I love about all of this conversation is that this life, this transitory life that the Bible says is like grass. It is just a blip, a quick second. It's so purposeful. And if I make this life all about me and just kind of what I want out of it and my overall sense of peace and comfort, Lord, I'm missing out on something far greater that you have for me. I pray over each one here, Lord. When I give a message like this and I talk about transformative leadership, it means something different for each person here. Someone might be called to be a leader in the community by serving the needs of others. I pray, Lord, that you'll raise up young leaders in this church who become small group leaders, men who eventually become elders, maybe even future pastors. Lord, leading in our families, leading at our work. So many different spheres where you've given us the ability to be that light of Christ. And we need to step into that space, Lord. We need to believe that you can use us. We need to feel called to it and passionate about it, Lord. Use us, Lord. Use us in the way that you intend. I pray this in the name of Jesus.